AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to Business on the Brink, a production from iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. Commodore had the most popular computer of all time. Yes, even against Apple and Microsoft. And later would upgrade to merge with another computer system, making them a double powerhouse. But the same strategy that made the brand sell so well was the same glitch in the system that would eventually lead to its crash. It's a calculated story full of crazy drama that sometimes might make you go, does not compute. So join us as we take a bite, that's B-Y-T-E, into the story of Commodore as a business on the brink. Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten, and this is a suggestion by a listener, Crystal Vanderleest. Thank you, Crystal. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it because it's right in my wheelhouse. Well, it may not be in my wheelhouse, but I owned both Commodores and Amigos, well, you're which a- is the other computer we're going to be talking about. Yeah, you're ahead of me. I never had an Amiga. Uh, I never had a Commodore either. I had a what? Texas Instrument. Uh, Trash 80, but I never had a Commodore. I'm sorry. The Commodore 64 for its day was a really good computer. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that because obviously it's a big, important part of this story. And one of the things we really wanted to focus on was the – the, the way this company actually had its fall from grace, which means we're going to go real light on the history part so that we can get to the juicy bits. Mm-hmm. But it is important to know where the company came from in order for us to understand what happened. Yeah. So to begin with, Commodore International was founded by Jack Trammell in 1954 as Commodore Business Machines Incorporated. He was an immigrant. He had actually survived Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And then after trying a few jobs in New York, once he moved to New York, uh, he moved to Canada and started manufacturing typewriters. Yeah. He actually got some money from a, a GI bill in order to fund that. And some other things we should know about Trammell that will become very important throughout this episode is that he was 
I, I wrote the line fiercely competitive, but I don't feel that truly captures the spirit. Do you, do you think it's too mild a, a yeah. description? I mean, he he literally was one of the entrepreneurs who said business is war. That's like a direct quote from Trammell. He said that when you go to business, you're not you're not just there to make money. You are there to declare war against all your competitors, and your goal has to be to win. I mean, a little bit of that attitude can maybe be healthy, but not entirely. You're missing out on key components of what made people like a company. Yeah, and there's going to be some discussion about his leadership style, which obviously rubbed some people the wrong way. But at the same time, he was considered truly a visionary uh, in that he really believed strongly in innovation and trying to take the lead in the industry. So it's kind of a double-edged sword yeah. with Trammell. Yeah, but we're not there yet because no. uh, as markets changed and the typewriter business got c- too competitive and yeah. too fierce, yeah. and not that he was scared from it, but he moved from typewriters to adding machines. Yeah, so what was going on was that the Japanese markets were starting to create typewriters. This was right around the time where Japan was starting to evolve into a technology and manufacturing powerhouse. So this is, you know, the the immediate post-World War II was about Japan kind of reestablishing itself. And then it sort of went full on into this manufacturing phase. Yeah. And the problem was they were able to make the same stuff that Commodore was making, but make it less expensive. So it was very hard to compete. And, and by that, we mean typewriters, not computers. Yes. So we're not there yet. Yeah. After adding machines, he moved to calculators. And during that time, he incorporated, which was in 1955, and he went public on the New York Stock Exchange in 1962 under the name Commodore International Limited. Yes. And shortly after that, uh, the company was in a bit of a rough patch. It was finding itself short of cash. And so one thing that Commodore ended up doing was selling a significant number of shares to a Canadian businessman named Irving Gould. And Gould would actually do that again. He would ultimately invest about $3.5 million into the company. And then as a result, he became a major shareholder in Commodore. And decision maker. Yes, he would actually end up becoming the chairman of the board. Yes, but before then, when Commodore was working in calculators, they were actually known for being a calculator manufacturer. Mm -hmm. They lost their supplier for the chips that go in the calculator and uh, Texas Instruments, and they actually – Texas Instruments actually decided to sell calculators directly. Right, so now Texas Instrument is making the competing – product, yeah. and it's taken away the source of chips that were powering the Commodore calculators. Yeah, so Commodore found other resources for chips and eventually bought MOS Technology, which was a chip manufacturer, and assimilated their chip designer, Chuck Peddle. And this is important because it's Chuck who convinced Tramel and Commodore to start looking towards computers instead of calculators, mm-hmm. and specifically home computers, because at this point in time, Computers were mainly for business. Yeah. In fact, uh, up to the mid-1970s, you were not likely to find a computer unless you were either in like a scientific or research laboratory or if you were working in a really big business, something like a bank or, you know, some other financial institution, uh, something that had to crunch a lot of numbers because – up to that point, computers were pretty big. They were like the size of a desk. And we're just getting to the phase where computers could be miniaturized enough to be a desktop computer. And even then, you had hobbyists who were interested in building their own computers and you had computer kits that were coming out. But 
there weren't very many PCs that were being built and sold as a full product, right? This mm-hmm. is the very dawn of that age. Yes. So this is where we see Pedal say to Trammell, like, this is a market that's going to explode and we can get in on the ground floor. And they did. So in 1976, Commodore International Limited moved their headquarters to Pennsylvania. Yep. And then a year later, they came out with their first computer, which was the Commodore PET, Personal Electronic Transactor. The PET. The PET. And by the turn of the decade, it was one of the top three computer companies Commodore was, at least among microcomputers or home computers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, again, this was like the early days. You did see a lot of companies attempt to get into this market. The ones we tend to remember really from this era would be Apple because the IBM PC would come a little bit later. And kind of Radio Shack. Yeah, and Texas Instruments to a to an extent. If you mm-hmm. if you were around back then, you might remember them. But if you were, say, born after, I don't know, 1985, then maybe you uh, don't remember these other computers. <laughs> Um, so let's, let's talk about what was going on with this because they, they launched the pet. The pet was not a runaway success for Commodore. No, no. Um, they were, they were one of the top three computer companies, but they didn't have a good marketing plan or good tech support and, you know, computer, home computers are a new thing. So there are going to be bugs. Yeah. And if another company is known for being more responsive uh, and providing better support, then they're going to start looking favorable to, yeah. so, to Commodore. So a year and a half later, Commodore <laughs> dropped in the ranks of computers mm-hmm. pretty hard. Um, they did course correct, and we got the VIC-20. Yes, which was incredibly successful. Yeah, one of the first personal computers to hit 1 million units sold. Yeah, they they hold the record for that. Like, Commodore hit that benchmark before any... The mm-hmm. Apple II did not sell a million units before the VIC-20. Yeah, and then we got... More importantly to me, the Commodore 64, that was my first computer that I remember. Um, <laughs> it came out in 82 when I was born. Everybody knows my age now. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember owning it. I remember playing Sticky Bear and Space Taxi and Koala Pad and Pole Position and I'm going to stop now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that really set the Commodore 64 apart was that not just that it was uh, a very good personal computer, at least according to Ariel's memory. Uh, I never got to use one, so I'm just basing this upon her ardent support in the notes. And uh, yeah, I, I I put down hashtag bias, not bias. Yeah, the I, fact um, that you drew little hearts and puppy dogs all around. You're not supposed so to tell weird. people. Okay, that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, they were both, the VIC-20 and the, C, the Commodore 64 were both priced incredibly competitively. So the VIC-20 came out, it was priced initially at $300, actually less than $300. That's incredible. It's like $299. Then you had the Commodore 64. It started at $595. And then they got into kind of a price war with the other computers that were on the market. So before long, the Commodore 64's price dropped and dropped and dropped until it hit about $199 for a new Commodore 64. Which is ridiculous for a computer. Yeah. It also probably meant that they were barely making any profit, if mm-hmm. any at all, because the the profit margins are pretty thin when you get down to that level. But this was Trammell's philosophy of business is war. And it meant that, yeah, we might not be making as much per sale, but we are totally 
given the, the sales. Yeah, we're getting the sales. We're, we're giving the screw to all those other companies out there. Take that, Apple. Yeah, they did beat out the TS from Radio Shack and Price, the TI from Texas Instruments, and Atari, who was one of their fiercest competitors, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Yeah, that the story gets so juicy. It gets so so fun is the wrong word. It's interesting. F- interesting, yes, fascinating. So Trammell, like I said, was said to be difficult to work for. There were stories about him firing entire management teams if things weren't going well, if Oof. he felt that they weren't weren't doing their job. And he was also known to really kind of leverage different suppliers against each other and try to make them dependent upon Commodore so that they wouldn't work with anybody else. He was also litigious. He would bring lawsuits against other companies, sometimes not even with the intent of winning a lawsuit, but rather just to slow down his his competition so that they couldn't beat him to market. he was also known to occasionally pull a fast one on retailers. One of the stories I read was that he signed a deal with Kmart to sell the VIC-20 at a price that was actually lower than the wholesale price he was offering to a computer retailer called Computerland. So, in other words, Computerland was having to spend more to purchase a computer from Commodore 64 in order to sell it off at a markup than Kmart was even selling the Commodore 64 in the first place. And so, of course, you can't keep that up for very long. No. And Computerland said, see ya. It, it seems like he was shooting himself in the foot, not building goodwill with the people who would sell his product, yeah. especially as you're getting all of these competitors. That being said, they did sell $1 billion worth of computers by 1983. And the Commodore 64, as we said in the intro, is the most popular computer system ever sold. Yeah. So you might think, well, how the heck could a company that is dominating the personal computer industry, one that has has got all of the firsts, like the first to hit a million units sold, a billion dollars in sales, how could this company end up faltering? How isn't it too big to fail? I mean, no, but we'll talk about that right after this break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. 
It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. All right, so like we said, Commodore was selling really well, outselling all of the competitors. But all of this price cutting that Tramel was doing, the the suits were not happy with it. Yeah, because it meant that you had very low profits. I mean, yes, you had incredible revenue, but very low profits mm-hmm. because that margin was so razor thin. And Irving Gould particularly objected to this. He had been the guy who had at least in his own eyes, rescued Commodore from certain disaster by investing so much money. And so there was this fundamental disagreement between Trammell, who was saying, let's take no prisoners and march into war and defeat our enemies, and Gould, who was saying, let's not, you know, end up uh, making being number one at the expense of profit. And eventually you get to this fundamental disagreement where Gould felt that Trammell had led the company to a billion dollars in sales but would not be able to grow it there up to 10 billion in sales, in other words. Not if he kept cutting prices. Yeah, it wasn't or, – or if you did 10 billion in sales, it wouldn't matter because you were selling it for less than what it cost to yeah. make it and you're just losing money anyway. It, it's reckless thinking. Yeah. So there have been a lot of arguments on both sides about the fact that one side's wrong or the other side's wrong. A lot of people have said both sides were kind of wrong – and that uh, there were there were legitimate points on either point of view, but there were also legitimate shortcomings on both sides. Mm-hmm. The the bottom line here is that you have these the board of directors who have decided that Trammell can't stay in charge. He's got to go. And of course, he was the founder of the company. Mm-hmm. And so there's a story about the board meeting, making their decision and giving Trammell the boot. And uh, the way the story goes is that it happened pretty darn publicly. So there are other rumors about how Trammell was bringing his sons on. That wasn't a rumor. That actually did happen. He had three sons and they had joined the company. But whether he was doing it to gain uh, more political footing over Gould or not is debatable. Yeah, whether or not that was an actual concern or if that – was just uh, a perception on the part of Gould. But by the end of 1983 or the beginning of 1984, right around there, is when the board of directors decided that Trammell had to go. He had to he had to be forced out of the role of CEO of the company. And uh, there's a whole story about him being at CES 1984, which happens in January every year, mm-hmm. and that while he was there, he gave a presentation. And, you know, he had all these great things to say about Commodore in the sense that they had a billion dollars in sales. That's a huge thing. But that he was visibly unhappy while giving the presentation. And so the story goes that he had already – he knew he was on his way out but then had to still go forward and give this presentation in front of the public. And then essentially a week later, the actual announcement of his departure became public news. Yeah. uh, Commodore hired a steel guy named Marshall F. Smith to run the company, and Trammell took his ball, if ball equals a bunch of engineers, 
and started another company, Tremel Technologies, and then he bought Atari's consumer division, creating Atari Corp. Yeah. Uh, the parent company of Atari, Warner Communications, only wanted the video game side of Atari, which is what most people are familiar with. Right, so. right. We will have to do a full episode on Atari at some point. That's a very complicated story because, as you see right here, the company of Atari had been split into two. You had the video game side of it that remained with Warner, and then you had the personal computer side, which went to Trammell. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also interesting that we see how Trammell who had built Commodore up, was now determined to take it down because of this betrayal. He was ready to go to war against the very company that he had founded. Well, Commodore was kind of on the same track because they bought a small computer company named Amiga, Amiga. for $25 million. And this gets so juicy. Yes. All right. So Amiga had been trying to launch a personal computer uh, – for a bit, had multiple failed attempts over the few years leading up to their acquisition, uh, mainly from the revenue side of things, some from the development side, but mm. a lot of it was revenue-based, and we're about to get into that. Uh, and the merge companies became Commodore Amiga, but the problem is, is that Amiga and Atari, before being bought by rivals, were working together. Yeah, so you had Amiga and Atari working on a project because the initial idea was to build a personal computer. But then the the guy who really was the driving force behind the Amiga found a lot of, uh, of resistance to the idea of building a p personal computer. But there was a lot of reception to build a video game system. Mm -hmm. So then he switches gears and he's, he's still really building a personal computer, but building a personal computer that's being marketed as a video game yeah, system. But he's getting a lot of pushback for all of the personal computer type things he wants to add to it. Yes. And then you had the infamous video game crash of 1983 slash 1984. And now suddenly the the there's no market to sell video game consoles anymore in North America. So now Atari is totally flipping out and like, oh, no, 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 we should turn this into a personal computer, which was what the plan was from the first place. Yes, yes. But now their revenue is gone. And you had this complicated rivalry that was really messing things up because you had this agreement between Atari and Amiga. Then Atari gets taken over by a former Commodore uh, founder and leader. And then Amiga gets taken over by Commodore. Mm -hmm. So it became a very, um, let's say, awkward business relationship. Well, Commodore tried to sue some of the engineers that left for Atari Corp from Commodore to keep them from releasing Amiga's ideas once they were working together. Mm -hmm. uh, Tremel countersued uh, because of Atari's contract with Amiga. There was a, a loan yeah. that if it wasn't paid back, Atari would get Amiga's IP. Yeah, so that was all coming to a head, right? Mm -hmm. Like it looked like Amiga was not going to be able to pay back this loan. It looked like Amiga was going to completely get wrapped up into Atari. And then in swoops Commodore, mm -hmm. they essentially said, hey, we'll pay that loan off for you. Yeah. So Trammell, who has to accept the payment for the loan, suddenly sees this prize that was going to be his get swept away by the company that had spurned him I told you it gets juicy. Yeah, yeah. But all this time, while these two companies are fighting it out 
Apple, IBM, and Microsoft start grabbing the market. Yes. So you have these two giants that are in a battle over Amiga. And meanwhile, there's not a whole lot of progress being made on the product side Mm -hmm. of Amiga because all this this corporate stuff has to get worked out. And so that gave plenty of opportunities for the other companies. This is the same time when Apple released its first Macintosh computer. The IBM personal computer was hitting the market. So now IBM was actually entering into the home market. Microsoft was playing every side against every other side and getting its software on anything and everything that was remotely a computer. And so this was was a bad time for Amiga because that that design had a lot of merit. Yes. Yes, it did. I owned an Amiga 2000, Mm -hmm. which is later on. They were working on the Amiga 1000 at this point. Yeah. But, yeah, it was was a computer way ahead of its time. And so not only were they suing each other to try to keep their competing products from going out before mm-hmm. the other one, which you said Tremel did. Yeah. It was known for doing. Uh, Commodore at the same time to try to get some money back from spending all of the money they did to buy Amiga was releasing weird models of computers. Yeah, like they were the, kind of competing the, with themselves. Like the C16. Yeah, they, they started releasing a bunch of Commodore-branded computers that were very confusing to the market because even Commodore was not really good at explaining what the differences were between the different systems apart from their different price tags. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them were kind of underpowered compared to a lot of the other stuff on the market. And because it seemed rather directionless, or at least in part because it was rather directionless, there wasn't a lot of adoption. So there weren't a lot of people going out and buying these systems. If you want to look into this stuff, we're not going to go into it because it gets really technical. Mm -hmm. But the Computer History Museum online has a ton of stuff about the different Commodore computers that came out. And you'll see that there was a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there that could confuse the average consumer who just wants to have a working personal computer. Yeah, yeah. Um, By the time the Amiga 1000 was ready to hit the market, they Mm -hmm. didn't have the resources. During that time, the ST, which was the Atari computer, computer came out. Um, And Commodore Amiga, once they finally did get the Amiga 1000 out, didn't really do a a good job at marketing. Mm -hmm. And they were also late to the market, so they kind of missed the opening window for the holiday season that year. And then they decided not to put themselves on the same... In the same stores, like Sears, I think it was. Yeah. As as the Atari computer. And then they also had bugs. Yeah. The Amiga 1000 was known for having some shortcomings mm-hmm. as far as that's concerned. Like, where it's shown, it outperformed all the other personal computers of that era. And Including that was, the ST. Yeah. And that was largely in the graphics and sound departments. Like, I mean, not a big surprise. The Amiga had for a while been laser focused into being a video game machine. And now it no longer was, quote unquote, just a video game machine. But the things that a video game machine needs to do well, largely graphics and sound, the Amiga did better than any other personal computer. And I think that's a pretty solid statement you could make. I remember when I first saw an Amiga in action, I was because it was at the time when it was first Mm -hmm. was brand new, because that's how old I am. I remember being totally blown away because it so 
left everything else I'd ever played or worked on behind. Yeah. As far as that, that the graphics and uh, sound were concerned. Man, I loved it. Uh, and they had one thing. So despite the marketing issues and the, the sales issues, they were easier to work with. A lot of people didn't want to work with Trammell, so he didn't get as much good software for his computer. And he had to price it lower than the Amiga because he didn't have as many cool bells and whistles. And the Amiga did outlast the ST. Yeah. So this was a case where Trammell's personality would end up uh, being a, a drawback. Mm-hmm. You know, it's he he was very good at going up against competitors, but he alienated a lot of people along the way. So in this in this sense, Commodore was in a better position, but it it seemed like it was a company that didn't know what to do with its star product. And that story's only going to get worse. But before we get into that, let's take another quick break. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Okay, so we're in the Amiga era. It's 1985. What happens next? All right, so in 1985, Mr. Smith who was the CEO of Commodore. Also uh, an agent who was going after Neo. Yes. He was really trying to make Commodore Amiga profitable again. Mm -hmm. So he cut payroll by 45%. (sighs) Nearly half. Wow. They had had losses of $237 million that same year. So he was really just trying to pay off some of their debt and, Mm -hmm. and stay afloat, it seems like. And then the next year, they opted not to do the big electronic shows like CES that they usually showcased at, again, to save money and, and focus on development. But that, the problem with that is it creates a public perception that your company is not doing well. Yeah, yeah. So then we got a management change. Oh, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, this, by the way, would become a common theme. <laughs> yes, yes. So Smith stepped down and we got Thomas Radigan. Uh, who took his place under a five-year contract. So That's important to note. It was a five-year contract. Yes. Radigan did three more rounds of layoffs <sighs> and cut a bunch of old and underperforming product lines. Right. Some of those confusing Commodore machines we talked about in the last segment. Yes. And then he relocated the Amiga team, at least those who agreed to go, from California to Pennsylvania. Yeah. The guy who was the the sort of the father of the Amiga J minor was not one of those people. No. Uh, and these things worked. The company was profitable again by the end of 1986, but people were not so happy. Yeah. Uh, now, Radigan really wanted to to kind of put some of Commodore's marketing power behind the Amiga. He really believed in that being a, a possible way to stand out among the field of personal computers that were 
starting to proliferate in the mid 80s. Um, and he also kind of oversaw the the creation of two different lines of Amiga computers. So you had sort of the low end and then the upper end, which is not that unusual. We see that all mm-hmm. the time today in personal computers, right? Now, back in the early, early days, like the Apple II, when the Apple II came out, it was just the Apple II. You would eventually get things like the Apple IIe and the Apple IIg and things like that. But early on, if you went out to get a computer, you got there was just one of each yeah. brand. This was sort of the birth of, or at least an early uh, example of having the low end and the high end of the same computer family. Yes, and the high end was the Amiga 2000. The one that you own. The one that I own that I love so much, so much. Uh, and then the one for casual use, the the lower end one, the Amiga 500. Now, they made a very odd decision when they were building these Amigas, right? They did. Uh, Radigan decided... Not to put the Amiga developer team on either project. So they had non-Amiga team people building the next generation of, of Amiga Amigas. machines. Yes. And meanwhile, the Amiga team people are working on other projects. Yeah, well. Or just sitting around being upset that they aren't on the design team for the Amiga 500 uh, in 2000. Either way, either way they were upset. Yes. Uh, on top of that, both of these computers, their development experienced delays. And mm. so they still were not coming out. They weren't meeting their goals for release. And Irving Gold. Yep. Saying, hey, I had expectations. They are not being met. So what is his solution to this problem? Well, he hires a consultant to look at the company and suggest changes. Yeah. Uh, I used to work for consultants. I know exactly what they do. So what do they do? They say, hey, you need to fire the dude who's in charge. (laughs) Yes. That's what consultants do. Yes. We call them the bobs. (laughs) It's an office space reference. Yeah, so here's the problem. You remember what we mentioned about Radigan just a couple minutes ago? Yeah, he had a five-year contract. Yeah, we're not five years into that. So getting rid of somebody who has a contract that says – He's going to hold this position for a minimum of five years. You get into some sticky situations. Uh, specifically lawsuits and countersuits for breach of contract. And Radigan won. Yep. $9 million in unpaid wages. Yep. And then Gould took over Commodore Amiga for a while. Yeah, he became the interim CEO. So he's chairman and interim CEO. Uh, The 500 and the 2000 Amigas would come out in 1987, uh, which, you know, they they came out, they were great computers, Mm -hmm. but part of the problem was that all those delays meant that it was harder for Commodore to capitalize on their launch because while they were being developed, other computers were still advancing and evolving. I still would argue that no one was coming close to the graphics and sound capabilities. I would agree, but you also have to figure... Since this is such a new area for consumers, they don't understand why they might need new, better graphics and sound in a personal computer as opposed to a gaming console. And it also didn't help that they couldn't run the same software as other computers. And so these other computers that had been on the market for a while and it really established themselves, you had software developers who were dedicating themselves to making stuff either for the PC or for the Apple, the Macintosh line. It's very hard for a developer to devote assets to making different versions of the same program for every Mm -hmm. single computer platform. So Amiga did not have the software support. It had a lot of video game support, but not a lot of software support. Uh, Then we get a new CEO in 1989, uh, Mehdi Ali, who was 
someone who had worked for Commodore for just three years. He'd only been there since 1986 before Gould tapped him to be the new CEO. And um, he is, to call him a controversial figure at Commodore is putting it mildly. Uh, There were employees who outright hated Ali, so much so that there is a documentary shot, not even a documentary, it was was like home movies shot by a former uh, chief engineer over at Commodore, where in part of the video... They burn Ali in effigy. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and that yeah things things did not go well as you imagine. Uh, there were a lot of complaints that Ali was a very highly compensated CEO, something like two million dollars a year, which was just you know a much much larger salary than what the engineers were making. And meanwhile, he didn't seem to have a vision that would lead Commodore to success. So. People said that it was a terrible case of mismanagement and that the executive team was more uh, interested in pocketing profits than using the money to reinvest in the company. In fact, one of the things Ali did that drew a lot of criticism from employees was he slashed the budget for research and development. So it's this is a computer company. Taking away their R&D meant that they could no longer be leaders in innovation. Yeah. Well, and it killed them. By 1994, only UK and Germany uh, were had successful branches of Commodore, mm-hmm. or rather branches that were profitable. And on April 29th, 1994, Commodore filed for bankruptcy and transferred their remaining assets to trustees to pay off their creditors. Yeah, they essentially went into liquidation. Mm-hmm. So uh, first you had part of Commodore, the UK branch, attempt to purchase Commodore International, but uh, they themselves weren't really in a great position to do that. Yeah, once a parent company goes under, then they're just basically trying they're they're holding on by selling off old inventory. Yeah. So they liquidated in 1995. Right. And then you had another company come in in 95 and they buy Commodore International for just 14 million dollars. This is the same company that made a billion dollars in sales yes. of a of a successful PC. Well, and Commodore bought Amiga for $24 million, so... Yeah, now you have the combined Commodore-Amiga company sold for less money than, than Commodore spent yes. for just Amiga. Well, this new company, SCOM, they split Commodore and Amiga, make them two separate companies again. Yeah. And they try to grow Commodore really fast, and it's too fast, and they go into liquidation a year later. Yep, so then... Where does Amiga go? Well, Amiga gets sold to Gateway 2000, and Gateway had these big plans for the Amiga brand and and all these things they wanted to do, and they didn't make good on their promises. And a few years later, in 1999, they sold Amiga to Amino Development, and since then, Amiga has been in and out of lawsuits, passing patents around, and eventually acquired by Commodore USA. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, You had another company, Tulip Computers, that bought the Commodore brand in 97. They tried a few things, but nothing really took off. Nothing Mm -hmm. really took hold. And so they eventually sold Commodore to uh, Yeronimo? Yeronimo. Yeronimo Media Ventures. Okay, you're you're right. It is Yeronimo. But that happened in 2004. Yes. Uh, In 2010 is when we got Commodore USA. So that tells you how long Amiga had been. Floating around. Yeah. Uh, and they had plans to make computers using the Commodore and Amiga names again. Mm-hmm. And the owner of Commodore USA passed away in 2012. And 
since then, it's just all kind of faded away. Yeah. So it's it, it's sort of like not with a bang but with a whimper mm-hmm. kind of approach. And you may have heard like there was a uh, like a, a Commodore 64 sort of an emulator that came out. It was not that different from, you know, the the NES emulator console, the tiny one that you can get mm-hmm. and attach to your computer. It's got like 30 games attached to it. There was a version of that. There are also emulators online for the, some of these uh, computers and, and computer yeah. systems. There are emulators that allow you to run old Amiga software, for example. Uh, so there's still a community out there of mm-hmm. passionate fans of these computers. And I think if you ever explore any of those communities, you will see sort of not just fondness and nostalgia for the machines, but also just a deep sadness for what happened with the company. Yeah. I think a lot of what happened with the company maybe could have been staved off. They might have had a different outcome if Tremel hadn't been so cutthroat. I mean, he had the the pricing and the competitive side of business down, but he didn't have the relationship building. You need to make good with your consumers. You need to make good with the people who resell who sell your product or resell your product. And yeah. he just he didn't even make his employees very happy. So I think there was just a a, a fundamental also mismatch between Gould and Trammell, and it just ended up being a a problem that ultimately caused Commodore to collapse. Yeah, and. This isn't to put the blame on either party solely. I think it was just a, it was just one of those bad combinations. Like you occasionally in companies see combinations where you get like the idea man or idea person, I should say, and then you get like the business minded person. And then together they do amazing things because they complement one another. Yeah. In this case, I would say that the two styles did not complement. They competed with one another and, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know that the company would have succeeded with a different person backing it financially than Gould. I don't know that it would have done any better with Trammell just being in charge the whole time. I also don't know that it would have done any better had Gould picked somebody else besides Ali to lead mm-hmm. the company toward the end of its life. Uh, some people believe that Commodore was already too far gone even by that stage. So uh, it's it was a tough thing to, to see happen because yeah. – Again, it was instrumental in those early years in the personal computer age. And if things had gone differently, we might not be talking just about, you know, the the Microsoft Windows-based PCs and Apple computers. We might also still be talking about Commodore machines. And I would be such a computer whiz. Such <laughs> a computer whiz. Like it's, man, I really shouldn't have put all of my Apple's into the Amiga basket because now I don't know how anything else I, works. I spent all of my build points for computer <laughs> nice programming. nerd reference yes, there. Yes, on Commodore 64 and well, Amiga 2000. I mean, it's kind of how I feel about, like, using Microsoft Word to this day. I was raised on WordPerfect. So I, I still am not the best at Word. And that's, that's a ship that sailed, like, 20 years ago. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> this was fascinating. It was a it's it's one of those stories, like I said, that's just so dramatic with the politics yeah. involved in it and seeing how uh these disagreements at the executive level can really affect a company. And in some ways you can say that this points back to the same old story we've told a thousand times on this show, the the whole succession planning and leadership changes and how that's absolutely fundamental to making sure a company succeeds. And once in a while, it works out great. And then very frequently, 
disaster just, occurs. Yeah. But whether it's disaster or success, today's story has come to a close. So, Ariel, what if someone wants to be like our wonderful listener today and suggest a topic to us? How would said hypothetical person reach out? Well, literally, they could reach out by emailing us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. That's correct. Or you can also visit our website. That is thebrinkpodcast.show. You will find there an archive of all of our past episodes. You will also find a little more information about your beloved hosts. And this has been a, a fascinating walk down the history of a company. I agree. We can't wait for the next one. So. You guys, just keep those suggestions coming because it's it's fantastic. We love that you are a part, of, an integral part of this show. Yes. And we greatly appreciate it. And until next time, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. Business on the Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.